So in the end, I suppose you could say I'm paying it forward. Yeah. Paying it forward. To the facts, ma'am. Before I published a word, I was writing raps, fam. It's a revenge of the kid with the rolly backpack, silverware, matte black, eating steady. The track you just heard is an excerpt from my brand new album, Amor Fatih. You may remember the music videos I put out last year Blasphemy, Straight A's, and Forward. This new album features all three of those singles plus seven brand new songs. Now, I put my all into this project, and it's a real representation of my passion for music. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, click in the description or search Cold X-Man on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Andrew Doyle. Andrew is a British comedian, writer, and political commentator. He's best known for creating and writing the satirical character Titania McGrath a fictional social justice warrior who parodies extreme progressive activism. Doyle's also a frequent contributor to The Spectator, Spiked, and many other publications, where he writes on topics related to free speech, political correctness, and social justice. He's also written several books, including Woke, A Guide to Social Justice, which he wrote in character as Titania, and Free Speech and Why It Matters, which he wrote as himself. In addition to his work as a writer, Doyle has also performed a stand-up comedy and appeared on various TV and radio programs in the UK. This was a really fun and wide-ranging conversation about a bunch of different topics, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, Andrew Doyle. Andrew Doyle, thanks Hello. so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. So you are uh, Andrew Doyle. I'll have introduced you fully in the intro to this, but yeah. people may also know you by your hilarious alter ego, Titania McGrath, yeah. which was for many years a favorite of mine on Twitter, uh, this you know fake sort of composite face blonde woman that is a cliche of social justice warrior, yeah. you know, sh- shibboleths. And for many years, it was not known who was behind this. No, so I, I was outed you were, against you were outed. my will. Yeah. That's right. And uh, and so I guess, and since then, you've been writing uh, for Unheard, uh, which is a great online magazine. Listeners of this podcast will remember I did an event with Unheard a few weeks ago in London, and uh, you've been writing for many other outlets, and you've been on Greg Gutfield's show. You've been doing uh, GB News yeah. Uh, in in Britain. Yeah. I've been, I mean, effectively I've been, I started by doing the sort of comedy satire route, mm-hmm. but then because so many of the things that I was talking about, I suppose require a bit more explanation and exploration. So I ended up writing about them in a serious way as well. Yeah. And I thought that was safest because then, you know, there were so many people who sort of determined to misrepresent what I was trying to do through Titania, that if all my opinions are out there in black and white and easily accessible, then hopefully that will put pay to those kind of misinterpretations. Mm-hmm. You know, because people would say, oh, you're just, you're punching down at minorities. You want to have a go at sort of gay people or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. and it's so far from what I'm actually doing. That mm-hmm. I thought if I just explain why I find this social justice movement in its current incantation to be such a problem. Uh, and if I sort of lay that out, then hopefully those misinterpretations would go away. Turns out that doesn't happen. People just are insistent on sort of misrepresenting you and what you're what you're about. Well, you're quite good both at satire and serious commentary. And 
And so I, I guess my question is a little bit about your background. Your background is mainly in comedy first, yeah. right? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I started out... Is it in stand-up or...? I was a playwright before I was a stand-up. Mm. So I used to do plays in very small fringe theatres. Uh, and then I started writing comedy and doing comedy sketch shows, again, in sort of London, small theatres in London. Mm-hmm. And the stand-up came about because I'd done a sketch show with two other guys and uh, we were short on material and we had a, like a night to go before the, the first show. So I just wrote, I said, well, I'll do a stand-up bit. So I wrote some stand-up and it wasn't very good, but I enjoyed it. Mm. So then I ended up doing more of it. So that's what happened there. That's why. I, and then when I got into stand-up, I was also a school teacher, but I started to earn enough money as a stand-up to go part-time. So then I was, half of the time I was teaching and half of the time I was doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. And then um, ultimately I started earning enough from stand-up and I thought, well, I want to do this because actually you can't really do both with ease. If, if you're doing stand-up in the night, because teaching's hard and it's a lot mm. of, a lot of hard work mm-hmm. and you end up neglecting the students a bit because you're not mm. marking essays on time. You're not preparing right. the lessons on time and all the rest of it because you're, you're out all night very late. On the other hand, I bet you get great material from being a teacher, especially of younger kids. I, I never talked about them on stage. Really? Is that never right? did. No, I felt it would be kind of like a betrayal. And there's all sorts of things, obviously, because kids are insane. Yeah. Uh, and there are all sorts of reasons why I do have lots of stories from my time at school as a teacher, but I, 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 I never wanted to work with that, to be honest. I never mm. wanted to do that. I, I just felt it would be wrong. So where did the origin of your character, Titania McGrath, come from? Well, um, Titania, the name comes from Midsummer Night's Dream mm. because Titania is, is queen of the fairies. And the, the idea of Titania McGrath is that she's a fantasist. You know, I mean, I think one of the, there are a number of sort of qualities that you can ascribe to the extreme social justice activists, you know, and one of them is is just a complete uh, to be completely divorced from reality, to embrace what they call you know lived experience or my truth, my way of knowing, and then that becomes a kind of surrogate for reality. And that and so in that sense, I thought, and often it's there's a kind of collective hysteria around them, which I thought was interesting. And so Titania, as a name, alludes to that. I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I asked a friend of mine to, because I didn't want it to be a parody. I didn't want it to be a parody of any particular individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want it to be an attack on any particular person. Right. So the character is a composite. So the, the, the face, uh, my friend Lisa, who's very good on the computer and I'm not. Uh, so she put together a, uh, I sort of sent a, a photograph of a woman who I thought she would look like this. And I just Googled smug woman or something. <laughs> and I said, I think she should look like this. And then she added glasses to her and change the shape of the jawline and all this Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. So the actual image is unrecognizable from what it originally was. She's a composite. Um, So it's more a, it's a satirical take on a type of person. Because the other thing about these, these activists is they all speak in exactly the same way. They all use the same language, the same maxims. Uh, they they use the same phraseology. They've got their kind of own esoteric cult-like language. So they so the phrases they always use, such as problematic, toxic masculinity, heteronormativity, cis-heteronormativity. You can kind of piece together the way they speak. If you know the way they speak, you can put together some sort of social justice boilerplate relatively easily. You know, uh, they talk about their lived experience. They talk about uh, how words are harmful and, 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 and all these sorts of things. And so therefore, she doesn't need to be a particular person. She just needs to be a type. And that was the idea there. And I also thought that if I'm going to satirize this movement, it should be on Twitter because that's their playground. That's where they operate. So this is something I noticed when I was at Columbia, too, is you can even notice there are certain words that the hardcore social justice inner circle. There's certain words they use that people around them don't use, which have nothing to do with ideology per se. So I would notice at Columbia if someone said folks a lot and they weren't from the South 
yes. where where people were, which is the typical reservoir of like folks, howdy folks, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of dialect of American. If they say folks a lot, 90% of the time they were in the social justice core. And it, I, I found that to be it, just an interesting kind of proxy. And, and it was a way of a little bit signaling like language often can be. Right. Just using these neutral seeming words that can signal that you're part of a group. I think that's a lot of it. I mean, I think the idea, for instance, of asking someone for their pronouns uh, must be signaling to a degree mm-hmm. because you don't, I don't need to ask you your pronouns because if I'm talking to you, I'm not going to use pronouns. Right. So, pronouns are only almost only ever used when you're not in the room. Right. Right. So it's a, it's a test. It's a, it's, it's, you know, it's a test. It's your, it's your saying, do you, do you believe in gender identity ideology? And it, 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 there's an implication there that you should. So that's, that's why that signals something. It signals, signals membership of a, of a group, of a tribe. One thing that's always bothered me, and this may say something about the strangeness of my own mind and pet peeves, is that when you're asked to say pronouns, you have to conjugate. So, for example, it's always Coleman, he, him. Not, oh, okay. not just Coleman, he, which would imply him it in, would. in 100% of circumstances. Because you never see he, hers. But you sometimes see he, they. Very rarely. But you wouldn't see, rarely, he, you wouldn't see right? he, them. So well, well, that- well, it would be he, theirs. Yeah. It would be he, theirs, not he, they, right? I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's because all- he implies him. And she implies yeah, but it's her, all, it's all, her, hers. It's all nonsense, isn't it? I mean, I, even that's not the way we use, I mean, 99% of people use pronouns as a substitute <laughs> for a noun to, uh, which always relates to biological sex. That's how we, that's how we use it. So the idea that it should signify a kind of gendered soul that you have that is not immediately identifiable from, from your anatomy is just a, an idea that is alien to most, the vast majority of people. And what I find unusual is that that vast majority have, for some reason, or a lot of them, have felt pressurized into taking on board these ideas. It doesn't make any more sense than having a business meeting and starting out by declaring your faith in, in Baal or, or some sort of, uh, you know, God. It, it, it's, it's an equivalent to that. You know, it's fine if yeah. you believe you've got a gendered soul mm-hmm. and you're entitled to that belief and to, mm-hmm. you're entitled to call yourself whatever you like and use whatever language you like. But it's this, I, this controlling, this imposition of saying, because I think really control is what it's about insofar as I've decided to use these terms about myself and I'm going to either intimidate you or to coerce you into a position where you have to use the language that I determine on your behalf. And that, to me, is kind of the seed of authoritarianism. It's interesting to me is, is the burden on uh, a transgender person to let you know what they would like to be called? Or is the burden on the whole room to, to, to normalize it by everyone saying their pronouns so that the one person who may have pronouns that are non-obvious... Yes. So that, that's always been what's interesting to me is because there's been so many rooms and, and I've been in some of these rooms where we're talking about 40, 50 people that are all cisgender identifying people, like all exactly what you would think to call them by what they look like. And yet everyone is going around saying their, proton, saying their pronouns to make a hypothetical trans person yes. feel comfortable or a hy- hypothetical gender neutral person who's not even there there's, feel comfortable. There's all sorts of odd problems with that one is one well in particular but one, on the other hand just to finish my thought if there is a trans person there and says look i'd like to be called this i'm a hundred percent for calling them that right a, a, as a matter of politeness and respect sure yeah i will do that up to a point i just think it's I, it's it's strange to make the burden on everyone yeah. to change the way they talk and think so as to make one person comfortable when that one person can come forward and say look this is how i it's also very patronizing because it assumes that that person would be uncomfortable. And that's mm-hmm. not true. I mean, most uh, trans people who fall into that category 
of their gender identity not being obvious or not being aligned to their anatomy have developed many strategies over the years to let people know. Um, the idea that the, the whole world must sort of change around them would be something that would be alien to a lot of trans people. Some trans people aren't out. And so therefore the, the pressure that they would feel from having to declare a pronoun is not actually in their interests. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm I'm with you. I mean, if, if a friend of mine transitions to the opposite sex, I will use the pronouns that he or she <coughs> prefers and the name that he or she prefers, I think it's a courtesy that isn't difficult. Uh, but that, but but I would not like to feel compelled to do so. Mm-hmm. I, but I'll take it only so far. I'm not going to use invented pronouns, neo pronouns such as "she" and "je" because yeah. that's just a nonsense. I'm not going to use "they" as singular because it's it denotes a plural, and I don't believe in sort of um, because I think language needs to alter by evolution, not by imposition. Because mm-hmm. to do so is to defer to authoritarianism. So um, I think that's a, I think in those examples when you're in a room full of people and everyone's declaring their pronouns, uh, I would say I don't do this, and I would explain why. I don't think anyone else should expect me to. Although that creates a kind of tension, doesn't it, when you do that? But I think it's important that people do. I mean, I also reject the term cisgender. I'm not cisgender because the definition of cisgender is when your biology doesn't align with your uh, gender identity. Mm-hmm. I don't have a gender identity and most mm-hmm. people don't have a gender identity. So mm-hmm. to call yourself cisgender is to acknowledge a faith you don't believe in if you don't believe in it. So this is a, I, I kind of had this conversation with Kathleen Stock a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Where I am more sympathetic to the sex versus gender distinction than I think you are and than I think she is, although I'm not fully decided on this and, and I'm persuadable. The idea that I do think I have a concept of myself as a man, that in addition to being biologically male, I think I, I have a self-concept that includes a picture of manhood and okay. what it is to be a man. And that, that probably, I mean, I can imagine that being different. I can imagine feeling far less comfortable in a male body because my self-concept is feminine in some way. And, and I can imagine it faintly, at least conceptually. I can't really empathize with what it would, what, what it would actually feel like. But do you, yes, but your concept of what manhood is, is a subjective concept, right? This yes. isn't some kind of um, universal preset that you can draw upon. In which case? It, is it subjective? I mean, it definitely relies on widely agreed upon concepts of, of masculinity to some extent. Yes. But, that, but it's also probably related to biology and actual male psychological traits yes, at some level too. So you too. could say that you could, you could find yourself misaligned from what your perception Possibly. of what manhood is and what, and what, um, and how you feel. Possibly. Yeah. But, but, but the point that feminists are making is that the, the, the idea of what a man is and what a, f- a woman is or how they ought to behave or what traits they ought to embody, those things are predominantly socially constructed anyway. Mm-hmm. So this is why I, I sort of find the concept of non-binary nonsensical, because uh, none of us fit into a pure uh, externalized, homogenized idea of what a man should right. be and what a woman should be, mm-hmm. in which in which case everyone is non-binary, in which case it's a pointless term. There's a lot. I mean, there's so much to unpack here because there's, I think there's, there is suppressed disagreement among the woke on this opinion, yeah. on on this topic. By suppressed disagreement, I mean there are a lot of internal contradictions between different strands of wokeness oh, that yeah. I don't think have been fully aired out or or teased out because there is a tendency to like logical consistency is not highly valued among 
social justice ideologues. So what you just pointed out, which is that it's it's logically inconsistent to say there's no right way of being a man or wrong way of, of being a man, no yeah. right way being a man, no wrong way of be, being a woman, etc. That's logically inconsistent with saying if you're a girl and you like to roughhouse, then maybe you're really a boy. Right. Because you just invalidated those stereotypes as meaning anything. And now you're saying they mean something quite profound. But that doesn't matter to the social justice movement because the it's, it's in- critics outside the movement that have pointed out that contradiction, really very, yeah, very yeah. few within it. I've well, because, seen- because the critic, there wouldn't be critics within it because the inconsistency is a feature of it, not a bug. The, you know, you have activists on the one hand saying that you have a kind of an innate fixed gendered soul, which uh, transcends the biological reality. And at the same time, they say gender is completely fluid and can change from moment to moment. Well, what is it? Either it's completely fluid and it, and it, and it uh, fluctuates in that way, or you have to have irreversible surgery to make sure that your soul aligns with your body. The inconsistency goes right back to the origins of this, to the the, the French postmodernists of the 1960s. If you read Jacques Derrida, uh, there are deliberate inconsistencies, even syntactically, uh, even in terms of what... It's part of the the contradictions, the the creation of a kind of nebulous inconsistency is part of the theorising, part of the process. That's where you get the idea of queering. Queering something is to take something that can can make sense and to destabilise it and to destabilise everything we know about it so that it it is no longer coherent. So when when we're having... When I try to have discussions with with critical social justice adherence, I would be making a mistake if I try to uh, reason in a way that that uh, most of us understand, um, because they don't accept the the premise of enlightenment values such as rationality. That doesn't it doesn't work with their worldview. Their worldview is predominantly located in feelings and emotions, and so therefore that's why you can't actually have a discussion with a, a lot of certainly the most extreme activists because they are in, impervious to reason. So even the very concept of a, of a conversation goes out the window. So I just generally try to circumvent those people. So uh, I remember one time I was in a class called Philosophy and Feminism as an undergrad at Columbia. This would have been maybe 2017. And we were reading Foucault. And um, I, uh, as part of the lecture, the professor made the claim that biological sex is completely socially constructed, that there are no differences between natal females and natal males that could have any implication for psychological traits, personality traits, average gender differences in orientation, etc. That was something I was extremely skeptical of her claim there and well because it's factually pretty, wrong pretty much knew it to be false <laughs> yeah. and i had read several books on that topic i had read uh steven pinker and i had read uh simon baron cohen's book on gender differences and i was somewhat familiar with the extensive literature on gender differences yeah. gender differences in chimpanzees etc so i tried to frame my objection in a way that she might accept because yeah. i knew if i said Hey, like, what about the whole literature on this? She would be like, that's sexist. Shut up. Um, oh, okay. Well, she would be hostile, you think? She was very, yeah, she was very hostile. Okay. Um, especially to male students. Really? Um, yeah. Luckily, I was black, so she was less hostile. Okay. But it, she was very hostile to white male students um, in particular. Well, they've got all the privilege. <clears throat> yeah. So. No, it was, it was quite the experience being in that class. It was, it was educational, not for the reasons right. <laughs> it should be. But I tried to frame it in, in a way that she might accept, which was to point to the experience of transgender people that take cross-sex hormones and have actual psychological effects as a result, which yeah. is to say, 
it doesn't even have to be transgender individuals, actually. You, you could just t- talk about men who take exogenous testosterone mm. to bulk up, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. End up experiencing what they call roid rage, right? Like anger symptoms as a result of excess testosterone. Right. You know, all, all these other kinds of personality changes. And then you just map that onto the fact that males have more of that to begin with naturally. Yeah. Yeah. How could it be that trans people and uh, men who go on testosterone and trembolone and all these hormones experience very real personality changes, but those hormones have no effect on the average personality differences between men as a class and and women as a class. And she she gave a kind of hand-waving response and I framed it in such a way to say, are you denying the lived experience of trans people that actually experience such changes, right? How do you reconcile this? And she gave kind of a hand-waving response. Oh, somehow he reconciles that. Somehow Foucault reconciles that. And I was very unsatisfied, but it, it goes to your point of of logic and reason not uh, not being valued in social justice ideology. And that, that was that's one of my biggest problems with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, I'd be surprised if she could point to Foucault specifically to to back up what she's saying there. Uh, but what she could probably do is point to theorists who have misappropriated Foucault uh, to do so. But I think it's one of those debates that, I mean, I think you were right to challenge her. And I think that's a really interesting thing to do. But in a sense, it's like challenging someone who believes the earth is flat. And at that point, you think, well, why should we even have this conversation? You know, th- this is not a serious discussion. You know, this is someone who is a, a t- uh, you know, a, a disciple of an extreme faith that you won't be able to reason them out of that because they haven't reasoned their way into that point of view. So I would say with someone like that, someone who just denies biological sex, firstly, I'm not, I'm not going to have the conversation with that. I'm not in a position, I'm not, I don't have the patience to, to de-radicalize someone, but also they're not persuadable. That's the other thing. What's more interesting to me about that scenario is why is it that someone in a, a position of authority within a higher education institution is, is peddling <coughs> just mythology. That's more interesting to me. Why is it that the New England Journal of Medicine now says that sex is a spectrum when even I, who know very little about biology, know that that is false? How do I know more than they do? So so I think what's interesting is, you know, it, w- it wouldn't matter to me if these if these ideas were being peddled by the crazy activists online, the ones who have the anime avatars, the people who scream with their brightly coloured hair. I wouldn't care about that because you could just ignore them. But it's the fact that they have somehow managed to infiltrate major institutions, mm-hmm. higher education, medicine, science, you know, governments. The fact that the New Zealand government is telling schools that they have to teach indigenous ways of knowing in the science curriculum. So, you know, while you're learning about the theory of evolution, you're simultaneously learning about uh, the god of the forest whose, whose teardrops are the origins of rainfall. Uh, and you're meant to be that is, learning about that as if it's a fact or as if it's a alternative a, way of knowing. What does that exactly mean? Because I'm means, fine with kids learning that an indigenous population believed that as sure, but part of learning world religions. Sure, but that is not in a world religion class. It's in a science class. In a science class alongside. <laughs> and when an academic mm. put together an open letter, a number of academics signed this letter sort of saying, we have no problem with teaching about indigenous traditions mm-hmm. or even respecting people's right to believe those traditions. That's all great. It just shouldn't be in a science class. Right. Um, and that person got fired and other people got criticized and attacked and canceled. Um, that's that's the problem is, is that we're kind of, I think we've been a bit too indulgent with lunacy. I think it's worth remembering that these people, although they're very powerful and occupy major positions in all major institutions, they're a tiny minority 
of the public. And they're certainly a tiny minority of intellectuals. So we can just work around them because they're not going to win ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, they can only win by proselytizing or intimidating, which they've done pretty well at so far. But ultimately, it will go. You can mock them out of existence, I kind of believe. And you don't even have to because their views are so self-satirized. So this is an interesting question to ask you specifically because you've been very much on both sides of this line of satirizing and making fun of wokeness and of arguing against it in a serious tone of voice. Right. But, but, written, when, but to be clear, when I'm arguing against it, I'm not arguing with them. And I, and when I say them, I mean the extreme critical social justice adherents. I don't mm-hmm. mean, I don't mean the people who've been duped into thinking it's a good thing because it sounds like a good thing because they use progressive sounding language like social justice. I want to push back that. a little bit against this though. Cause I mean, if you forget about wokeness and just think about, you know, actual, well, I won't say actual, but cults, yeah, you know, extremist religion, extremist Christianity, evangelical Christianity, Islam, etc. Yeah, people do rarely, I would uh, concede, but they do actually get persuaded out of those beliefs sometimes. I've seen it happen with and the I don't think, Baptist Church. For I don't think wokeness is any different. I agree. So I, I do think it's. I never want to give up on the possibility, however slight, of. I you totally know, agree. Persuading you know, someone. I totally agree. I think the, you've seen members of the Westboro Baptist Church come away mm-hmm. from that really toxic uh, family. And you've seen Daryl Davis de-radicalize mm-hmm. members of the KKK. Mm-hmm. So you, but all I'm saying is I do not have the skill or the patience to do it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. I don't, I'm, I'm glad that people like Daryl Davis exist and he does it. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't. I can't sit down and talk to a racist, someone who thinks that there are there are hierarchies between racial groups. I can't. I don't know where to begin with that. I, 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 it's interesting. I I think I do have that kind of patience. Well, like that's I've, good. I'm I'm, I'm glad you do. <laughs> enjoyed at some sometimes there there are these guys uh, on the street sometimes at Columbia's campus that are evangelical Christians yeah. holding Bibles and they tell you you're going to hell. But they're also down to have a serious, somewhat logic-constrained argument about why they believe what they believe. But you'll so, hit a brick wall eventually. You hit a brick wall eventually, yeah. But there is, like, I think a surprising number of extremists have an internally logically sound structure based on false premises. Right. So, like, the premise that they accept without further argumentation, which everyone has that. Everyone has things that are self-evident. Yes. But for some people, those self-evident truths are way less justifiable. So so like for me, a self-evident truth is that reality is real, right? Like there is an external world about which truths can be known. Yes. And I could debate with a solipsist who believes only I am real and you're a figment of my imagination, but those are contradictory. And, you know, there are whole books about, about why certain brute facts brute beliefs are contradictory, but some people, their brute first principle is like God is real or their brute first principle is white people are oppressive. And if you bottom out there, then you really can't argue. I agree. And I think it's a really beautiful thing that you are willing to talk to those who have these extreme views. And But uh, my point is within their, aside from their brute first principle, sometimes they are, they are bothered by logical inconsistencies you might point out. Sometimes they are. Yeah. Sometimes they're not. And I, I can't be bothered to work out who it is I'm talking to when it comes right. to these beliefs. I mean, you know, I can stand there and talk. When someone says gay people are going to burn in hell, that's a belief system I can't reason them out of. I can, you know, maybe you can, and that's mm-hmm. an all power to you. But I sort of give up there and I think, no, you know, I, I'm going to focus on the armies of the unpersuaded mm-hmm. out there. There's a lot of people 
who uh, are open to persuasion. I would say the vast majority, most people are. Um, I'm open to persuasion. I'm open to changing my mind. And I think all of us ought to be. But the de- the, uh, the characteristic of an extreme zealot is that they are, on the whole, not. But good on you for trying. No, no. I mean, you're right there. And that strategy may be more important because even within these institutions, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, you mentioned these important institutions that have to one or another extent been captured by wokeness. I would bet good money the majority of dis- key decision makers in those institutions are not true believers. They're not. They're terrified, though. They're terrified of <laughs> a 5%, yeah. um, maybe 10% yeah. of true believers. And they are, but they don't feel they never want to be the first person to criticize. Yeah. So it's like uh, there was this, I think it was Brian Kaplan had some blog posts years ago where he said, couldn't we just stop crime easily by saying the very next person to commit a crime will get shot in the head? And insofar as everyone believed it, no one would want to be the first person to commit a crime and then crime would would cease. Of course, there's no way to actually do that, nor would it necessarily be just or good. But it's an interesting experiment about thought experiment about not wanting to be the first person. And that's what it is when you when something as ridiculous as we're going to teach, you know, the native raindrop theory, divine theory of raindrops in science no one wants to be the first person to say, okay, this is ridiculous. Right. And it's the same as no one wants to be the first person to laugh at the the naked emperor mm-hmm. because you'll be the one who gets your head cut off. Right. And it is the same thing. I mean, it's why in the book I've just written, The, the New Puritans, I draw an analogy between the critical social justice movement and Salem and what happened in Salem, because the reason that went on for a year is because those who did express some kind of skepticism were the next to be accused and mm-hmm. ended up being hanged. So when there's that, those things at stake, Everyone just pipes down. I mean, you must know, I mean, all of the people who have taken a stance against wokeness, we all get messages privately from people communicating their support who will not do so publicly. And this oh, is yeah, just a very, sure. very common thing. And it's, it can't be that we're all being hoaxed. You know, there are there are lots and lots and lots of people out there who say, look, just please keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I can't speak up about this. And I get that as well, because people do have... They have to earn money and they have to live. I do too. I get those messages regularly. Yeah. And even before I was as well known as a writer and podcaster on the national landscape, I would get those, I would get people walking up to me at Columbia saying, thank you for writing that thing in the That's even braver, newspaper. Right? Because then they're doing it out in public. Well, not quite where they can be seen. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, but. So down alleyways and stuff like yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about, uh, I read your recent piece in Unheard about gender roles and the history of subversion of gender roles going back to the theater of the of the of 17th century England and so forth and you also had commentary there on on Andrew Tate and and the explosion on the right of the a kind of opposite flavor of gender idiocy which is this you know insistence that we revive the gender roles of you know the 1950s madman right. world yeah, yeah, that Andrew Tate. So I guess let's start there. Okay. What is the appeal of Andrew Tate, his explosion in 2022, especially as you note, among British, young British boys? Yeah, they love him. Really, teenage boys. <laughs> Where does that massive popula- popularity out of nowhere come from? 
I'm not really qualified to say, but I can speculate. Is that right? I can can speculate. That's all I can do, really. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. I think one of the reasons is that boys seem to be predisposed to require authority figures or to crave authority figures. And there's a lot of research which would suggest that. Christina Hoff Summers writes about this in her book, The War Against Boys. There are all sorts of reasons why uh, there is a correlation, for instance, between um, uh, boys who grow up without a father in the family, between the the likelihood of criminality in later life and things like that. So there's a lot of research and study that would suggest that. Andrew Tate is the kind of figure who comes along and sort of says is confident and brash and successful and gets what he wants and all that kind of thing and, and therefore is aspirational is perceived to be aspirational. Of course this is uh, I suppose this would predate the the, the recent uh, convi- uh, attempts to convict him or whatever so the, mm-hmm. I'm sure once you know if he if he is proved to be guilty I think that will change this this thing of him as a role model I think. Mm. But I think really it's more to do with those kind of authority figures. But I think in tandem with that, I don't think it's a coincidence that over the past 10, 15 years, a new discourse has emerged, particularly within education, which has sort of punished boys for behaving in in the ways with in which they are genetically predisposed to behave. Boys are much more likely to engage in rough and tumble play than girls, for instance. And there is clearly something, I mean, you could say part of that is to do with socialization, but there's clearly a biological element to that. But to inculcate this idea of masculinity itself as being a form of toxicity, uh, to say to boys, you know, you are privileged and uh, forms of oppressors, even if you don't quite use that language, but to imply that in the classroom to sort of punish boys and for not behaving like boys. Well, I think that's what explains a lot of it. Mm. And, you know, I used to be a school teacher. I still know school teachers. I know teachers who teach at boys' schools. And they say that increasingly they think all of this social justice stuff is nonsense. Mm. And they are, and Andrew Tate, very, very popular and, and figures like him. So I, I think it's only, it's only possible for someone like Andrew Tate to rise to fame so explosively and so quickly in a society that has overdone it on, right, on exactly. the message of, of feminism. Because frankly, the things that he or says... one flavor of feminism, right? The things that he says, they are reactionary, deeply yeah, reactionary. Yeah, they're misogynist. Yeah. So He's a self-admitted, proud misogynist and, and sexist. But do you and, think the boys that... I mean, I, I'm not convinced that the, the boys who say they are fans of his actually support those elements of what he says, the misogyny. There's an element to of mischief here. Yeah, this sure. Is, this is a figure who... He's, tra- he's so transgressive because right. society has over, over-indexed right, on right. the simplistic and problematic in, in the in the old sense of that word message that boys and girls are exactly the same. Right. Exactly. That basically any deviation from any deviation you see within males and females is, is all socially constructed. Boys have been brainwashed to want to fight more and want to be more aggressive and uh, like whatever they like. Yeah. And basically the way you should be is the way girls tend to be. And right, exactly. boys are kind of like broken, evil, messed up girls. So that's what the right. phrase toxic masculinity means, really. Right. It means that the, and, and there are all sorts of ways in which men can be toxic. And there are all sorts of ways in which women toxic can be toxic. Toxic masculinity is real, but so is toxic femininity, right? right? right. Like there are, toxic masculinity is very recognizable. It's physical aggression. It's starting fights. It's beating up people smaller than you yeah. because you can. Yeah. It's physical intimidation and violence. And we've had, societies have had ways of dealing with that perfectly or not. 
for a very long time. Yeah. Toxic femininity is, a, is, a, is another thing entirely. can be equally damaging. It can be spreading lies about you behind your back, pretending to be your best friend to your face while just backstabbing you in all kinds of subtle ways, yeah. navigating and manipulating your social surrounding to your own advantage using yeah. your words. That's what happens when, when women breach that boundary of toxic femininity. And yet the only thing that's really been talked about in the conversation is toxic masculinity. And of course, both of those examples you've just given can be enacted by both sexes. Sure. So it's just a matter of one, it predominates, one predominates with men, one predominates with women. But I also wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which if you tell young people that someone is uh, beyond the pale, that that makes them attractive. I mean, I spoke to a teacher, there was an assembly at this school where the headmaster said, did it basically said, you mustn't mention Andrew Tate. He cannot be mentioned. He cannot be talked about. You know, a letter went out to the parents saying this is an, an evil presence. So mm-hmm. of course they all want, of course right. they all love him. Like what? I don't think it means that they agree with Andrew Tate that a woman becomes your property when you get married, Right. which is what he said. It was interesting because when he was pushed and pressed by that by Piers Morgan in an interview, he, he denied it at first and then ended up mm-hmm. saying the same thing again. Which, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't think boys actually believe that. I don't, I'm not afraid that if boys watch Andrew Tate videos, they will turn out to be misogynist. I don't think that's what's happening here. Yeah. I think it's about the idea of, of uh, mischief and rebellion and whatever that and would I, be. I think they know the narrative they're being given is wrong yeah, and yeah, exactly. demonizing them for traits that they have naturally. And so anyone who takes a sledgehammer to that becomes a kind of hero to them, right? regardless of the validity of what he's saying. What they should do is say, they should do assemblies about how Mahatma Gandhi is toxic and you should never read it. And then everyone would end up being a sort of pacifist. Uh, smart. Yeah, that would be the smart you know, thing. It's interesting, to though, to compare Andrew Tate to Jordan Peterson because they they are very different. Hugely. Yeah. In, in their message. Yet they rode a similar wave of massive popularity that was demonized by the media and not sought to be understood by the mainstream media. And both were categorized as anti-feminist. One, I mean, and Andrew Tate definitely deserves that. And uh, Peterson, in some ways, depending on your definition of feminism, probably. But they had very different messages, right? Like jo- Jordan Peterson, they were they could both be put into that category of authority, father figure that you mentioned yeah. boys need, but in very different ways. Jordan Peterson is the kind of person that will tell you to... It's if if women don't like you, it's your fault. I mean, to some extent, they're both preaching that message. But the the end of Jordan Peterson, if you follow his prescriptions in life, you're going to get married, probably have one stable partner and not cheat on her, have kids and, you know, self-actualize in your career and in other ways, which the vast majority of people left and right outside of real radicals that think marriage is like a whatever bad construct, most people would like that message and women benefit from it equally. Yeah. Um, Whereas Andrew, the end of Andrew Tate is this other thing of just like women are your property and do whatever you want with them and be an Ubermensch and be a badass. The only point of comparison that really is convincing is that their success can, I suppose, be attributed to that lacuna that has been left in the lives of young men. Mm -hmm. Um, That's it. That's as far as it goes. Uh, And they're not saying the same things in any way at all. Right. And I, I think to suggest they're on a continu- continuum, I think is, is fatuous, really. They, interesting, they, though, like Jordan Peterson was sort of painted as who Andrew Tate actually yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But, but that's because he's, he became a folk devil. He's one of those people who... Um, oh, and what was interesting about Jordan Peterson in particular, I mean, given how many copies of his 
of 12 Rules for Life was sold, it's very easy to just read the book and see what he actually thinks. But so many people were so sort of, particularly activists, were far more content to imagine what they thought he should be thinking and then to attack that that creation of their own imagination. I just don't think they had the patience to read a whole chapter about lobsters. Could be that. Could be the lobster thing, you know. <laughs> I thought the lobster thing was really interesting. I was like, if you, if you want to write a hateful book, just make the first chapter all about lobsters and no one will read the rest of it. But it, I think it's more than that. I think it's just that they're so wedded to their their hysterical fantasies. The same mm. with J.K. Rowling, you know. You know, it, it would take roughly, I'd say, half an hour of Googling and reading to come to the conclusion that J.K. Rowling has never said anything transphobic and uh, does not uh, just simply does not hate trans people mm-hmm. uh, as a matter of fact. And yet you have whole areas of the of the online community, but also among the commentariat and media commentators who've just bought into a group collective fantasy that she hates trans people and they cannot be shifted on that. So I, there's something going on at the moment where the fantasy is more appealing. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, I can't talk someone out of their fantasy mm-hmm. because that's their fantasy. Mm-hmm. I can only reason with people who have who've looked at the evidence and drawn a conclusion. And so I, I see Peterson and Rowling on a, they're very similar in the way they have been treated. Mm even though their viewpoints are, are massively different. I like what Peter Bogosian has been doing. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with this, if people have been seeing his videos online, but he's been doing this for some reason in Eastern Europe, but I think uh, in, in other places as well, though yeah. I, th- I, think he's, I think he's American. He's been going up to people on college campuses and kind of planting, colonizing a little area yeah. and making it about a question, a controversial question, such as... Do you believe gender is a social construct? Yeah. Do you believe racial inequality is caused by systemic racism? Any of these culture war flashpoint issues. And he'll set up a little area and people will people will say, oh, this is what I believe. I'm on this side and you stand on that side. I'm on this side. You stand on that side. And he basically asks both sides very simple questions getting at not what they think, but why they think it and yeah. how they think it. And a question he'll often ask is, what what would have to be different in this reality for you to change your mind? Mm-hmm. Or put differently, what evidence, if it were to appear in front of your face, yes. would change your mind? Yeah. Which is a great question always to, to ask yourself. And it's one I often ask myself about controversial issues because there always, I mean, there always is some evidence that if it came out different, if it came out differently, would nudge me in, in one direction or another on yeah, all yeah. of these issues. And it's it's very useful to think about what that would be. Occasionally, he comes across someone that says, <coughs> no possible change in the state of the world yeah, yeah. would change my beliefs, which is an admission that your beliefs have no connection to reality. And yet someone who says that would not be willing to make that admission because they've decided that they have the kind of sacrosanct truth and it doesn't require any any further evidence. Yeah. And Peter can do this because partly he's so charming. I think that's a lot of it. You know, even even when he's talking to his detractors, he doesn't lose his patience. No, he doesn't, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't. He's, yeah. he's pleasant. He's, right. he's inquisitive. He's mm-hmm. asking them to talk. Mm-hmm. He isn't just talking over them. Mm-hmm. So he's really good at this. And of course, he should be. He wrote that book, How to Have Impossible Conversations right. with, with James Lindsay. And he... Um, and that that tactic you've just described is is in the book. It's included in the book. That idea of asking someone what what, what would need to change for you to change your mind. And uh, he's thought a lot about it. He's a philosopher. You know, he, he he thinks in terms of he values the Socratic method, which is about asking questions. You know, irrespective of what you believe, ask the question. Mm-hmm. And that is ultimately. But the problem with that is it is tied into a a Western rationalist approach mm-hmm. and is often rejected. But what's great is, I mean, as you say, those videos show you that even some of those young people who are so caught up in this, they do end up asking the questions. They become a bit more loosen up, a bit more patient. Mm-hmm. 
There's the one where there are people on the roof shouting down at him because he's doing one of those experiments in a courtyard at a university and they're shouting abuse at him. When they come down face to face, because he's so amenable, they end up, you can see, that they won't go away having their minds changed, but the kernel will have been planted in their heads. Maybe my preconceptions about this person were all wrong. Maybe this person has a point and maybe I'll think about that a little more. And so then the next time they have that conversation, they'll have moved a bit further forward. So I think what he's doing is so immensely valuable. I think it's, and it's brilliantly done and I'm a, a huge admirer of Peter. Yeah, I think it's also great to broadcast examples of successful conversations. Yeah, because like is. the algorithm is going to feed you preferentially examples of conversations that have gone horribly awry. Yeah. And to some extent, that is the model of cable yeah. news is to engineer those conversations. Of course. Which is why I, I tend to shy away from cable news requests that I've that I've gotten. I wanted to ask you though, this point about like, you know, you can't reason people out of of things they've they haven't reasoned themselves into. I'm curious what you think as someone that has been a satirist as well as a more serious arguer. Do you have any sense of like the ratio of people that have been persuaded by you, by your satire, as opposed to your writing? I have no idea. I, I've had messages from people who've said that Titania did change their mind or at mm. least open them up to a perspective they hadn't perceived before. Mm-hmm. But I have no way of knowing how widespread that view is, whether it's really had an effect at all. I don't know. I mean, that's something, you know, I've always wondered about is, am I just making these people angrier? Is that all I'm doing? I no, don't I don't think so. I mean, I asked you the question, but I have a, I have a strong opinion about it, which is, I think often comedy, comedy bypasses the rational mind sometimes. Yeah. If something is funny, you will find yourself laughing at it, whether or not you agree with the underlying premise yeah. of the joke. Yeah. And Andrew Schultz is a great example of this. I did a, I did an event with him and he, you know, the question is like, you know, are comedians getting at the truth? He ran through some jokes, one joke that had arguably a sexist premise, but every woman in the room is like dying laughing. Yeah. Because if you had tried to make the argument he was making in a rational or serious tone of voice, it would have struck you as offensive. Yeah. But comedy and humor has a way of sort of bypassing the parts of your mind that are, are that tend to get offended by, by things and it goes straight to your funny bone. And if you find yourself laughing, you can no longer yeah. kind of a bit laughter is involuntary, I think is the point that I'm getting at. And whereas if you make an argument I hate, I can just get angry and not accept the logic of it. Until the end of time, right? I can pretend you're not making a good point very easily. People do this all the time. But if you make me laugh, I can't pretend you're not funny because laughter is not voluntary, right? Yeah, sure. So I think think that laughter has uh, and humor has an incredibly important role to play in combating ideologies uh, that that are dominant and that need to be criticized. And that's why, uh, you know, that that's why comedians in the past were who made fun of religion when, when Christianity was the, you know, the law of the cultural land were, were so were taking their, um, maybe not their lives into their hands, but we're certainly running serious risks by making fun of religion, but it was incredibly funny because you could you can say things in a joke that you may not be able to say as effectively to an to a hostile audience. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot to think about there. I think 
you're right about laughter being an involuntary reflex and sometimes you laugh in spite of yourself mm -hmm. and that's why a lot of the comedians sometimes the hardest laughter is in spite of it yourself. is yeah and i do feel a lot of the comedians who've been captured by this ideology they, they tend to become worse comedians i mean they, oh, they sure, yeah. particularly this has happened in the uk where you'll go to a a comedy show and it will be a sermon mm -hmm. dressed up as comedy and people aren't laughing so much as clapping mm -hmm. because they are uh, applauding the sentiment that mm -hmm. has been expressed and to me that's the most and, boring but clapping of course is a voluntary action right, right? exactly exactly this, so that's is, the this is the key but you're right some i mean this is why for instance a comedian like jerry sadowitz who's a, a famous scottish comedian and magician who is the most offensive comedian i've ever seen so i mean absolutely well, any line you can imagine, he will have gone past it 20 times over, mm -hmm. which is incredibly offensive stuff. Mm -hmm. And his show last year at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival was cancelled by the venue because they put out a statement saying that his, the opinions he expressed on stage do not align with their values because they're not values they're and they're not opinions they're they're jokes and you do find yourself when i watch his shows like i find myself laughing at things that i think and almost castigating myself for even laughing because it, mm -hmm. they're so vile and that's what comedy can do which is really interesting but i think there's also an interesting distinction to be made between comedy and satire satire often isn't funny that's the one thing satire often uh it comes from a different place there's a really interesting um definition by wh Auden. he said that uh satire uh was um angry but optimistic because it believed that it could change the world through exposing the follies of the world mm. but comedy is uh good-natured and pessimistic in other words the comedian thinks ah oh, well it's all gone to hell mm. so may as well just make fun of it and i think that's a really useful way to describe the distinction and i wonder whether Whereas comedy can make people laugh in spite of themselves, I wonder whether satire, which has a, a, that different quality, that more forensic quality and, and, and exposes those vices in a very direct way, whether that just agitates people more, upsets them more. Mm. You know, there's that um, story of uh, the, the ancient satirist who, Hipponax, who, whose uh, attacks were so barbed and perceptive that his targets went home and hanged themselves. Yeah. So, so I think that I don't know <laughs> to what extent... I don't, what extent does it work? I don't, it's a, I, I consider it a strategy partly, but also it came out of desperation. I started doing Titania. I'd already been mocking this stuff in stand-up, but, but Titania was a, a satirical route rather than mm -hmm. telling jokes about it. I would try and embody it and try and replicate it. And, and that was my approach. And I genuinely don't know. I, I mean, a, a lot of the people who liked Titania do so because there's a sense of relief as in yeah because absolutely. particularly back then I mean, this was five years ago when i started it that that wasn't really being targeted much it was being targeted but not much well it's like it's like all the i felt when i was aware of titania and i say it like i think early days of titania like 2018 yeah. and 20 2019 it's like all the times i wanted to laugh at some ridiculous social justice statement that i had to sit quietly yeah didn't have to but chose to it's like all that comes out yeah that's all it. that suppressed laughter can come out at an amazing titania tweet that perfectly captures the illogic or the like what this worldview is taken to its logical end but at the right. same time the people it was targeting the people who believe in that worldview they were furious furious i mean yeah. the, the anger I'm sure they were similar to anything like it yeah because you're right that satire inherently belittles the people sure. that it's satirizing so for example the old colbert show where he would play just this you know the democrats picture of the republicans of the 2000s yeah and he would go on bill o'reilly's show right and instead of 
doing what someone else might do, which is Bill O'Reilly, you're wrong. You're wrong about the Iraq war. You're wrong about abortion. You're wrong about same-sex marriage. He would say, no, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And he would do this character that he was, I'm going to outright wing you, but have these just like subtle hints that, that show how ridiculous I sound. Right. Exactly. Um, and I'm sure that angered Republicans far more than anyone who just attacked them. Particularly if there's those elements of truth in what he's doing. Exactly. Satire always has exaggeration. It, it but angers you precisely in proportion to you recognize, God damn, that's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. You know? Exactly. And that, I mean, the, the tweets that I did as to Tani that I've, I've been most pleased with are the ones that kind of, <clears throat> that they've ended up saying themselves later on down the line. Mm, you know? Mm-hmm. She would tweet something and then a few months later a newspaper article would, would come out basically saying the same thing. Mm. And, and and so that because I'd got into the mindset of the way they think and the logical endpoint of where they thought. But that's why I think it. So I think really bad satire is when you haven't you don't know what it is you're satirizing. You're mm-hmm. attacking a straw man. And people have accused me of that. So they'll say, well, Tatani is no, then no one says the kind of thing she says. This mm-hmm. is just you raging against something that isn't there. Mm-hmm. But if that were the case. Why do so many of her tweets then become mimicked in reality? Mm -hmm. It can't be the case. So, you know, I've read all their books. I read all their articles. I spend more time reading their stuff than Mm -hmm. than views that are aligned with my own. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's where I think satire can be effective. So like for for example, I'll just give one example from a few months ago. Okay. There was a CNN article, CNN, right? It's not fringe. No mainstream. That said daylight savings time is, uh, contributes to systemic racism. Yeah. Right. Because when the hour, when we go fall, fall back or, or spring forward, black Americans that already suffer from somewhat lack of sleep, which is, I'm sure, a knock on effect of being poorer as a population, their sleep is even more disrupted. Right. Because they're already poorly slept compared to white people. Okay. So therefore daylight saving time contributes to systemic racism. Right. Okay. Right. So that's like, that's something that could have easily been a Titania tweet yeah. uh, a, a couple years ago. Yeah. And someone would have said, oh, well, that's totally unrealistic, Andrew. There's, there's no, I mean, the woke, they, maybe they're a bit much, but they would never go that far. Right. Exactly. Right. And then that's a CNN article. Right. I mean, I've got a thread Tatani did a thread of the time she's predicted it, the times mm-hmm. she said it first, and mm-hmm. then it's happened later. There's about 15, 16 on this thread. Because mm-hmm. whenever it happens, whenever I see an article, I think, I tweeted that a while ago. <laughs> and then I go back and find it, and then I add it to the thread. Right. But there's loads of them. So it's it, that criticism. I mean, I take I take legitimate criticisms. If I've made a joke or I've written a tweet and it's a bit lazy or whatever, I'll take that criticism. Mm-hmm. But the criticism that I'm raging against something that, that doesn't exist, that's just, that's not true. Mm-hmm. That's just a tactic to try and undermine what I'm doing. Um, uh, of course it exists. And and of course you exaggerate, but you are, are often, what I'll try and do is think, okay, well, this is, <laughs> this is where they've gone so far. So what's the next logical step mm-hmm. there and, and, and see what happens then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what else is there to talk about? Whatever you like. Let's see. I don't know. That might've exhausted all, all the, uh, well, we were talking about the to... predictions and the, um, just wondering what your next thought was there. I had a good one, but now it's, it's, uh, I think it's left me and I have to accept that's that it's fine. left me. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Wait a minute. St- it still feels like it's like on the uh, precipice. That's okay. Well, I've enjoyed Titania a lot and um, I think I think many people have. And um, I, I, a lot of people have told me, wanted to ask you like where, where she's gone. I do it less and less. Yeah. Just because I've been doing it for so long. And, mm-hmm. and now that I've, I'm doing my show on GB News and I'm producing this new show with John Cleese, which is in development at the moment. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And then I'm doing... He's great. Yeah, he's brilliant. And then I'm, you know, I'm writing a new book. And, and so 
all the other stuff, I don't really have time. And inevitably, because I've done it for so long, I feel like I have sort of done it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've written two books as her. Yeah. What, what, what more? I mean, and the problem with Titania is she is a monomaniac. She's obsessed with one thing. She's mm-hmm. obsessed with pushing the gospel of social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever conversation you would have with her, it would she would turn it into a discussion about uh, toxic masculinity or, or white privilege or, mm-hmm. or gender or something. Mm-hmm. So that means that invariably it gets repetitive when you're creating it because right they because these activists only talk about the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. which is often why you get this criticism with Titania they'll say oh it's it's one joke over and over again it's one joke but of course that's quite a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is because what it actually is is a replication of your monomania as an mm-hmm. activist mm-hmm. it wouldn't make sense for Titania to start talking about completely unrelated topics right you know, I mean, I do that in my stand-up. My stand-up, I, I talk about all kinds of topics and things. You know, if they came to see my stand-up show, they couldn't go away saying there was one joke. But if you were doing a satirical representation of a, a type of a particular type of activist, then yeah, it does have to kind of be one joke. It has to be one note because that is who they are. And but that also the downside of that is in terms of perpetuating her as a creative, it gets quite samey. Right. And I, you get you know, bored. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an element of I've just done it enough. I want to do different things. Mm-hmm. I tend not to do the same thing for too long. You know, I was the co-writer on this character called Jonathan Pye for three years. That was a satirical character that mostly attacked the right, mm-hmm. Trump or Johnson over here in the UK. And um, after three years, you're like, well, I've done all I can with that. So right. I'll move on to something else. <laughs> Titania has been going for a number of years now. You know, I want to do other other things. But I'll, what happens is if something happens in the media that I think, oh, I should comment on that as her, mm-hmm. that, or I think of something that I think would be fun, mm-hmm. I'll still put it out there. But I just won't be doing it regularly. I'll just right. do it every now and then. I think I remembered the thought that I had, which is I, I think the reason satire is so aggravating to the person being satired, good satire at least, is because it what it says about your belief is... I understand you. Yeah. Right. It's like, I understand you. I can imitate you better than you can imitate yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people like to think that their thoughts have achieved a level of sophistication. Right. So when someone who hates your worldview can do you better than you, it's kind of like having a great imitation done of you actually. Right. It's belittling because if someone can replicate you, if someone can just copy you, then you're not as special as you think you are. That's Um, a really good point. And that's why it's, Part of why it's so offensive to people. I think to see yourself reflected in an unflattering way. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And, and you also, I think it's also, you you like to think your enemies don't even understand yeah. your worldview. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, because if they understood it, then they'd agree with it. It's just, they're so dumb. They're so out of touch with your sophisticated thoughts. And when they prove to you that that's not true by satirizing you very accurately, that's anger provoking. Well, well maybe that was going to say, maybe that explains the degree of anger. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I've written articles which people will vehemently disagree with, Mm -hmm. but nothing has come close to generating the kind of rage and ferocity that Titania has. Just from my own personal perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. I've got into online spats about articles or or interviews I've done and people take an issue with what I've said, but they never escalate to the point of the pure hatred I've had from doing Titania. Mm. I mean, they will send threats. They will uh, just pure ad hominem attacks. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they they say they want me to die in a grease fire, whatever they say, you know. So that 
can only really be explained, I think, if they recognise some kind of truth in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. If they do see themselves in what she's saying, I think that it also explains the, the, the uh, denialism of saying what Tatani says isn't nowhere near close to what actual activists say. Because I think it could be, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but it could be that they're just, it feels uncomfortably close, that they're feeling a little bit seen. I, I think that might explain it, particularly when people are coming from a position of power. Mm. Because Titania for me was always my attempt to stand up to bullies. I don't like bullies. Mm. And I see this movement as being a bullying movement. Mm. They victimise people, attack them, uh, ruin their lives. And what I find particularly unjust is that they do so while uh, claiming the mantle of being progressive and compassionate and good and on the side of the angels, which is an incredible cloak if you're going to be a bully. So to deflate someone's power, I think, generates rage, which is why tyrants throughout history have always particularly hated comedians and satirists, mm -hmm. why it's been illegal, why they burnt satirical books in, in England, in, in the Bishop's Band, which is late 16th century, why the Emperor Domitian had people killed if they merely made a quip about him, mm -hmm. why President Erdogan in Turkey, uh, you know, has a he resurrected an obsolete law which enabled him to, to lock up satirists who mocked him. Mm -hmm. He tried to get a satirist extradited from Germany for making a satirical video about him. Almost succeeded too. Tyrants hate it. People with power hate to be mocked. Hannah Arendt wrote about this, that the best way to undermine authorities is laughter. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's one, I think that explains to a degree the rage. I mean, it could be that it's, they just don't like that kind of humour, I don't know, but why would you get that angry? I d like, if I don't like a comic, I just don't buy tickets for that comic. It's not mm -hmm. a big deal to me. Mm -hmm. I don't go online and endlessly scream about how unfunny and horrible this person is. I, I, that, that's and the I anger comes from a sense of threat that you are being made to look ridiculous. Yeah. Well, good. They should which, which, is, which is threatening. Yeah. Right? Because once people see you as ridiculous, then they no longer fear you. And if fear is how you, um, if, if fear is how you exert power, then right. that, that's... Well, good, because I'm sick of these people intimidating their way into positions of power. And I think they deserve to be taken down a peg or two. And I think if they're feeling fearful and angry about it, then that suggests I'm doing something right. And they can rail against me all they like, but I still think it's the right thing to do. So the one thing Americans may be less aware of is the examples in Britain of wokeness essentially having the backing of the police. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. And in America, I think our First Amendment protections on free speech and general culture would probably prevent something like this from happening. I think but, it does. But can yeah. you can you give the American audience an example or two of this happening? Yeah. Well, um, the UK police are trained by a body called the College of Policing. And the College of Policing basically have been captured. And so they uh, implemented something about 12 years ago called non-crime hate incidents. And what that would mean is that if you said something to me and I said to myself, well, I, I think you said something unpleasant to me because you were thinking homophobic thoughts <coughs> and I phoned the police, they would log that as a non-crime hate incident. It's not criminal. You've just said something insulting or, mm -hmm. or something. It's not criminal. It's not, not against the law. They're not going to prosecute you, but they'll log it against your name as a non-crime hate incident. And what that means is if you apply for a job, it will show up on a, on a criminal record check and may prevent you from getting the job. Mm. So there's a lot of power within this. And there were, there were, within a five-year period, the police in England and Wales recorded uh, over 120,000 of these against citizens. Most of them didn't even know these things were being recorded. Mm -hmm. In Scotland, the police have a database of jokes that they found online, which they consider troubling, and they've logged all of that as well. I mean, we come back to the... Finally, we've been pushing. There's been a court case. Uh, someone who had a non-crime hate incident recorded against them, a 
man called Harry Miller, who had retweeted a poem that someone found offensive. And so the police visited him and the police said to him, we need to check your thinking. That's why we're here. He said, I haven't committed a crime, have I? They said, no, we we need to get in your head and check your thinking because it could subsequently lead to a crime. That was their justification. So that did go to the High Court. And we've reached a position now finally in the UK where non-crime hate incidents will probably be scrapped. Mm. But, you know, we've had this High Court ruling. We've had the Home Secretary saying to the College Policing, you have to get rid of this. And they just ignored it. They think they're above the law. We had a uh, a woman arrested last week, a woman called um, Kelly J. Keane, who also goes by the name of Posey Parker, feminist campaigner. She was arrested for hate speech, even though the whole speech was on, is online and you can watch it and there's nothing criminal about any of it. She just takes a view against gender identity ideology and the police have called her to be, have, have said, you've got to come in for an interview and if you don't come, we'll arrest you. And this is the policing of speech. Even if she was saying something offensive and objectionable, it still shouldn't be illegal. You're lucky, like you say, you have your First Amendment. You can say something offensive and objectionable. So as long, so long as it's not incitement to violence, according to the Brandenburg test, so long as it's not harassment, or any of those other ways in which language can be used to implement a crime, you know, espionage or blackmail or perjury, you have complete freedom of speech. And that's the way it should be. We don't have that in our country. In the UK, uh, around 3,000 people every year are arrested for offensive things they have said online, mm-hmm. uh, which is... Wasn't there a girl, uh, I guess a woman, maybe a young woman that got arrested for saying the N-word in the context of a rap song? Yeah, she posted, a friend of hers had died in a car accident and she posted one of his favourite songs, the lyrics on Instagram. And Mm -hmm. it was a rapper which had the racial epithets in the lyric and she was arrested. She was fitted with an ankle tag and had um, a curfew and it eventually got overturned, that one. I I forget her name. It was just a young girl, you know. I mean, those stories are just absolutely crazy to an American ear and especially to think that they happen in in the UK, which is one of the three to four countries in the world we'd consider the most similar to ours. But the police are, because the police have, they've they've taken the view, and if you look at the Crown Prosecution Service or the, the government's official website on hate crime, what it says is you can have committed a hate crime based on the perception of the victim. Mm-hmm. Now, note it doesn't say the perception of the complainant. It's already decided that there's a crime here mm. because someone says they're a victim. So these, this is all straight out of the lexicon of social justice. So they have been captured. In addition to that, you have a body called Stonewall, which is obviously based after the bar in, in New York, actually. Mm-hmm. Stonewall uh, was a fantastic gay rights charity, which went for many decades, fighting for gay equality in all sorts of ways and achieved it. And once they'd done that, they thought, what can we do now? And they went into gender identity ideology and they have completely captured the police force. So on that particular issue, feminists are often the ones who are arrested or investigated by the police for saying something which is quote unquote transphobic, Mm. for misgendering someone. I kind of think, I mean, Canada's completely gone. So in Canada, you you know, you, people do end up in court for the language they choose to use. I think you're kind of protected here so long as the activists don't get their way because there are activists who are saying we need to amend the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. We need to make hate speech excluded from the idea of free speech. If they win that, then then it's all over for you guys. But certainly in the UK, we, we don't have a written constitution, you see, so we, mm-hmm. we don't have that. I'm not saying there is mass censorship. But we do have a government that is pushing through this thing called the online safety bill, which will put more pressure onto social media companies to censor. We have a government that's pushed through a bill which is uh, basically outlawing outlawing protest if it's a little bit too noisy. Uh, and of course, protest can be noisy. That's part of it. So we, we, we don't live in a country that really values free speech in the way that it should. And I would like to see something in the UK some sort of bill of rights or something where free speech is enshrined. I'd like to see a written constitution where we have free speech enshrined in it uh, so that people don't go to prison for jokes, which has happened, that they don't get arrested for jokes or for saying offensive things. I think if people want to say offensive things, they should. Uh, If someone wants to say 
that all gay people are evil and they should be second class citizens and they shouldn't be allowed to get jobs. Uh, I think they should be allowed to say that. I, and then I can then choose not to associate with that person or I can argue back or I can protest. There's all sorts of things I could do. I could, I could ridicule them. I can do whatever I want. But as soon as I say, actually, what I want to happen is that person needs to be arrested so they don't get to speak anymore. Uh, then I'm the authoritarian there and I don't want to be in that position. And I, and I don't understand why people would find that appealing. Mm. But there's clearly something about the human instinct that does find authoritarianism appealing. Yeah. And I think that is manifesting itself in current police practice. At the moment, it looks like the high courts are pretty sound. Like we've still got good, objective people in the judiciary who often overturn these decisions that get made in the lower courts. To a degree, some of the lower courts seem to be a bit captured and the police. But because it's gone into all of these institutions, education as well, particularly higher education, it's going to take so long to unpick this. You know, the police shouldn't be out in a pride parade dancing the Macarena in rainbow flags because they're meant to be serving impartially. But they're actually wearing flags that now connote a belief system that most people in the country don't believe in. And that's a real problem. Yeah. So I, I don't know how you pull away from this uh, in terms of the UK police. They keep ignoring these instructions from the home office and, 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 and what percentage courts. of the police do you actually think believe this stuff? Very and what few. percent are, are just sort of following? I think to be fair to the police that they are doing their job. I mean, they've been told that if someone phones them up and says, I heard a nasty word and I feel like I'm a victim of a hate crime, they are now obliged to investigate that. So I do feel for them. But then you get these very clearly zealous members of the police force. Because it occurs to me, a woke person rarely signs up to become, a true believer rarely becomes a cop, at least in America, right? Because the cops are by definition enemies of progressive wokeness, et cetera, right. law and order, Yeah, right? Maybe it's different in the UK. Yeah, no, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's just very interesting kind of dynamic going on there. I don't think people sign up for it. I think they are told by these bodies, such as the College of Policing and that's Stonewall. That's what they have to do. That that's what they have to do. Yeah. And even they end up believing it, I think, because mm -hmm. they're told that there are a hundred different genders and that you need and to I guess like these things. Once you're already doing something because you have to, because it's your job, yeah. you naturally are going to want to believe it's a good thing you're doing. And also, you don't want to go home at the end of the day and think you're doing something horrible. Right. And also most people are decent people. But this is the, the thing about the culture wars is you, you can you can fall into the trap of thinking that there, there are these incredible gulfs within society. But like most most people are just boring, boringly nice, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And so therefore, if, if a group like Stonewall, which has a great track record of standing up for equal rights and minorities, and they're telling you something, you're like, oh, well, then I'll, they're right and I'll mm -hmm. believe that. Mm -hmm. And this is something I come back to all the time. I think that if, if the critical social justice movement was exposed, if, if, if people got past the progressive sounding language, if people realized that phrases such as anti-racism actually mean the opposite of what they purport to mean, if people could navigate all of that and realize that, no one would support this or, or a handful of extremists would support it. Mm. But it's because they've been very clever linguistically and it's because they describe themselves as liberal when they're illiberal and they describe themselves as progressive when they're regressive uh, and they say they're, they're looking out for minorities when actually they're making life worse for minorities and all of these kind of things. So I think the police are no different from that. They want to be on the right side of history, to use that phrase. Who doesn't? But I don't think, I mean, I hope, I don't think there is such a thing as the right side of history. I just hope to God they're not on the right side of history, because if they are, the future looks really, really bleak. All right, Andrew Doyle, thanks so much for coming on my show. Before I let you go, can you let my listeners know the latest titles of your books and where they can follow you on the internet? So my last book is called The New Puritan's how the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World, uh, which is out now in America as well. And then the book I wrote the year before that is called Free Speech and Why It Matters, which is a very short 
book and it's like a primer to it makes the case for free speech all over again because i think it's the kind of thing you have to kind of restate these points in every generation i don't think you win the battle for free speech and then it's done and we see that with like the way the aclu has gone used to be great stalwart defenders of free speech and now they're pretty much anti-free speech Mm -hmm. so you need to keep making these arguments so i wanted to write an accessible primer on that so that's what that book is and tani mcgrath has two books and her books are one's called woke a guide to social justice and the other one is called my first little book of intersectional activism which is for kids but it's not really for kids all right. And where can they follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, which is Andrew Doyle underscore com. And you can find me and you can follow Titania if you like, Titania McGrath. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.